This past week, I was out on my bike in the evening with my middle son, Glenn. It was about 7.30, and we were picking up my oldest son from a class. As you all know, it's pretty much nighttime now by 7.30. We are quickly heading toward winter. So it was dark, and Glenn was alert and talkative, sort of enjoying being out and about later than usual. Is it going to get darker than this tonight? He said, looking up at the cloudy sky that was sort of a hazy gray, reflecting back light from the city. And that led us to a conversation about the two kinds of dark. City dark and country dark. I explained that it wouldn't get that much darker than this since we're in a big city with lots of street lights and cars. But out in the countryside, far from any city, it would get quite a lot darker than this. In her beautiful book, Late Migrations, author Margaret Renkel writes about her first encounter with a night sky free of light pollution. She was a teenager who had grown up in cities, and on this particular occasion, she was visiting friends in the countryside. Late one very clear evening, everybody piled blankets into the car and drove out to a field that was miles out from the small town where they were staying. And she remembers looking up on that clear night in hushed astonishment at all there was to see in the sky. The stars had been there all along, of course. She'd just never been able to see them quite like this before. She also remembers a parent nearby struggling with a young child who didn't want to get out of the car. The mother was trying to coax her son out of the car into the profound darkness of the field beneath that canopy of innumerable stars and he was afraid to come out. She said she would hold him, but he wouldn't budge. I'm too little, he said. It's too big, and I'm too little. The night sky far from city lights can have that effect on any of us. It's humbling, and sometimes even a little scary, being confronted with the vastness of all of that. There is a country dark sky in the background to the Old Testament. It's sort of always there. Whether it's Abraham challenged to count the stars, or the psalmist looking at the skies and wondering how God can possibly be mindful of people, or Job facing the whirlwind and the voice of the one who made it all. God is the creator, the one responsible for the vastness of the world, its wonders and its creatures, and awe, which the Bible often speaks about as a certain kind of fear, is always an appropriate reaction in the presence of this transcendent God who's bigger than our minds, our words, our theories. I'm so little and God is so big isn't actually a bad way to put it. That picture of God is always there in the background in the Bible. But strikingly, right alongside it, there's also the picture of God talking very personally to Moses. Sure, God talks with lots of people in the Bible, but with Moses, there is something special. From the beginning, these two have an intense and particularly close relationship. They chat, they bicker, they plot, they argue, they rest in one another's presence. The Bible says that God and Moses spoke as neighbors, as friends. That's an incredible statement when you think about it, right? What does that even mean, to speak with the transcendent, world-creating God as a friend? Friends speak as equals, of course, 
And somehow this is the sort of relationship into which God invited Moses. It's hard to get our minds around that, I think, but that's just how the Bible describes it, mysterious and incredible. Our reading from the book of Exodus this morning picks up shortly after the whole golden calf debacle. It wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that particular story of the people of Israel creating a divine image out in the wilderness and worshiping it as the end of God's relationship with them. They had blatantly broken the covenant, after all, and it took Moses' intercession, standing in the breach and calling on God to remember the promises to avoid disaster. It could have all fallen apart there, but instead the story continued with God still committed to the people. But things did change after this incident, however. God told Moses that it was time for the people to leave Mount Sinai, to continue their wilderness journey. And our reading today picks up some of their conversation about that journey ahead, sort of embarking out into the wilderness again. These two speak very openly with each other. And Moses wants to know the plan. How is this next stage of the journey gonna go? Will you be with us the way you have been so far? How will we continue to know that we are your people? Come on, God. Show me your ways. Those are all bold requests, of course, but God doesn't seem particularly troubled by this. These two are used to each other, after all, like a couple of old, familiar friends, and God accepts Moses' demands graciously. I will do the very thing you've asked, God says, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So far, so good. But then something happens. It seems that Moses goes one step too far. Show me your glory, Moses finally says. And I don't know exactly what he has in mind here, but it seems that he's been pretty pleased with how this has all gone so far, with God granting everything that he asked for. So he tries one more request, a glimpse of the unimpeded fullness of God's presence. And that's a really big ask something nobody has ever asked for or received before. And here it seems God draws a line. To be sure, God's not angry with Moses for the request. God will speak the divine name and even go so far as to pass by. But there's this limit. Moses will not look on God's face, but only on God's back. Well, now things have gotten pretty strange, right? It's no easy task to imagine God and a human being speaking intimately as friends, but to think of seeing God's back? I mean, is the Bible really saying that the transcendent God is, who's greater than our imaginations has shoulders and forearms and a spine? The image suddenly makes God seem far too small. I think far too close to all those paintings of an old man with a long white beard and apparently a back. The story makes more sense to me if I don't take the back imagery too literally. Then it has more to do with the limits to our understanding. Yes, God and Moses are close, but there's a limit to how fully God can be comprehended, even by somebody like Moses. This is still the God who made the country dark sky, after all. And this one is bigger than our certainties, always beyond our control. 
Moses may have been getting a little carried away here, wanting to possess God fully, to sort of know everything there was to know. And even for him, this is impossible. He will only glimpse apart. He will only see God's back. For me, that's a helpful way to understand what's going on here. But I also learned that God's back isn't the only way you can translate this passage. Robert Alter, a Hebrew scholar and translator, does something quite different with this particular verse. He says that Moses would only be able to see the afterglow of the effulgence of God's presence. I had to look up effulgence just to be sure I was getting that word right. It means brightness. So that's another way to look at what's promised here. Moses won't see God sort of head on, but he will see the afterglow of where God was, the shimmering of the place where God has been. And now I don't know about you, but that gets my imagination going because it's so often in looking back that I feel I can glimpse the presence of God in my own life. Most of the time I'm hurrying through my day, zipping to the church on my bike or picking up kids from school or answering emails or meeting with someone and I don't notice anything particularly holy around me. But if I stop, maybe at the end of the day or maybe on a slow walk through town, sometimes I can spot moments where there is a sort of shimmering, a flickering trace of where God has been. Do any of you feel that way? I think it's sometimes easier to spot God's presence in our lives looking back, tending to those places where an encounter or a phone call or a visit or a landscape or a book was in fact a vehicle for grace, a gift that we profoundly needed. In this particular time that we're in right now, filled with more than its share of uncertainty and anxiety, I imagine it might not always feel particularly natural to sit down and quietly let those gently glowing moments emerge for you. It doesn't certainly always feel natural to me. There's so much to worry about right now, so much to keep up with. But if this is how we catch sight of God, then it's surely something we don't want to miss. So if you are not already in the habit, I want to encourage you to try making a practice of finding a little cleft in the rock, a safe place to sit and notice what flickers for you over the past day or the past week. Maybe it's a few quiet moments in the morning or before bed at night. Maybe it's the moments just after this church service when you flip off the live stream. Maybe the moment is, is there where you can find it. The point is to pay attention, to look for the traces of God's love that are there in your own experience, the glimpses you might catch, to notice those and to give thanks. We are always going to find our limits in understanding this God who stretched out the heavens and scattered the stars, who is never ours to control. And yet God doesn't remain distant either. God comes close enough that our lives shimmer with grace. We don't see fully but we might catch the afterglow. May it continue to warm us and light the way. Amen.